If you put up a giant solar project outside my city or in some rural part of my state, will my electricity bills go down? No, of course they're not going to go down. Maybe in the long, long, long term, they might. So they're cheaper for you and your profits go up when you build it. But if I put solar on my roof, in almost every single situation, my electricity bills will go down immediately, including paying for the financing of the solar panels on my roof. Even with that, my electricity bills will go down immediately. So as far as I'm concerned, the cheapest form of solar is when I put it on my roof. Hello and welcome to the Solar Maverick podcast, where solar meets entrepreneurship and experience. I'm your host, Benoit Thanjan. So let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick podcast. I'm excited to interview Bill Nussie on his new book, Freeing Energy. Freeing Energy is a book about how innovators are using local scale solar and batteries to disrupt the global energy industry from outside in. Freeing Energy is a deeply researched, actionable guide for anyone that cares about the future of energy from startups, policymakers, investors, and utility leaders to the families and communities that want cleaner, cheaper energy today. Bill Nussie is the founder of Freeing Energy Project, whose mission is to accelerate the shift to cleaner, cheaper energy. Prior to Freeing Energy, Bill spent most of his career as a tech CEO. He was on episode 82 of the Solar Maverick podcast with his partner, Ben, on their startup, Solar Inventions. This book is really interesting. I recommend everyone to read it, whether you're new to the industry or an established solar veteran. I learned a lot from reading the book, and it also helped me with getting more concrete ideas on concepts that I was thinking about. Some of the interesting things that Bill talks about is how solar and storage is a technology and not a fuel, how there'll be a day of too much electricity, specifically solar energy, that there'll be an overcapacity, and that's a good thing, and why China is dominating solar manufacturing. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Solar Maverick Podcast. Thank you for listening. Let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. I'm really excited on this episode to interview Bill Nussie and his new book, Freeing Energy. I really enjoyed Bill reading this book. I learned a lot, and I think our listeners will learn a lot once they read the book. What I love, too, is that you come from another industry and basically take things that you've learned from your experiences and apply it to a new and different industry. Bill, welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to have you. Thanks. I'm really flattered to be here. I'm flattered you read the book and happy to share some of the things that we learned in all the research, putting it together. It's an exciting time in the industry and hopefully the book will play a small role in getting the word out there about just how many opportunities exist. In the introduction, I talked about your book, Freeing Energy, but it would be great if you could talk about what made you write the book, also your experience before. I've heard it many times, but I think it would be really helpful for our listeners to learn more about you and the book writing process and obviously the book. I'd be happy to share a bit of that backstory. I grew up in an age before computers were widely used in homes and I was the quintessential nerd. And so I couldn't play any sports teams in high school. So I found this computer <laughs> and started programming it. I thought this was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. So I started a business in high school selling software for the ancient TRS-80 and Apple II computers. Really, I just fell in love with business. I fell in love with computers and spent the next couple of decades of my career as an entrepreneur, frankly, because there was no interesting companies to work for. So I made the companies with some brilliant co-founders, had some successes along the way, building and exiting these companies. And the most recent company that I built with the amazing team was called Silverpop, which was in the marketing tech space. It was another software company. It was one of the first companies in what's called software as a service. We sold it to IBM in 2014. This really begins my journey into clean energy because I wrote a letter to the CEO, Ginny Rometty, amazing business leader, telling her what I thought IBM could become if they changed some of their approaches. So how do you think she responded? I didn't know what to expect. I got a nice reply. Thank you. This is really helpful. But what she did and didn't tell me was that she had forwarded it to all the, the SVPs and said, read this. And so I started getting job offers. I live in Atlanta and I was getting job offers to move to headquarters and help run some part of the company, which was yeah. a surprise. The one that really intrigued me, I ended up taking was to help run strategy for the whole company, for her and the SVPs to figure out where IBM could go far into the future as a business, oh, how to wow. become more relevant in the computing industry they arguably created. While I was doing that, I was running a project that looked at all possible industries, had a brilliant team of folks working for me. And one of the industries that I wasn't familiar with was electricity. And even though I got a double E degree a million years ago and studied the industry from an engineering point of view, I didn't know it as an industry. 
the more I read about it, the more I realized that solar was going to transform and disrupt the industry, the more excited I got. I started driving my friends crazy, my family crazy, because they're like, you keep talking about this, you should do something. I liked working at IBM, but eventually I decided that I needed to get into this industry. I decided I needed to throw away a perfectly fine career in software tech and join the clean energy industry. But the problem was I didn't know a thing about it. And that's where the book was born. A friend of mine called me up one night and said, I know how you can learn the industry. You need to write a book. That was like one of the most powerful ideas I'd ever had. And three or four months later, I was starting to think about writing what's now freeing energy. That is an amazing story to hear. And I appreciate what the book has because there's so much value so many different topics that you've covered that are extremely complicated and you've tried to simplify it as much as possible. Also provide data in a simple fashion for people to understand. And do you think being new to the industry was beneficial? And I think it'd be interesting as well for our audience to hear about how many people you interviewed, how long the process took of interviewing, and then when the book was actually published of December of 2021. So I interviewed 320 people formally and probably another 200 less formally. The journey really started out open-ended. I didn't know what part of the industry was going to be interesting. And one of the things, having been a strategy consultant for IBM and having worked at McKinsey briefly, having built a large strategy firm back in the dot-com days, I had seen my share of poorly supported materials. And I'd worked for companies like McKinsey that would never let that happen. So I had professionally been exposed to how do you make a compelling point to people who are not experts, but are sharp. And it's actually really hard to do because you have to do a combination of things that engage them personally. There's a saying that drives that part of my writing, which is the only thing truer than truth stories. And you have to have stories, which is why the book and so many of the chapters open with stories. But you have to apply it to the left brain at the same time. So I would go through months of working on the book where I would be interviewing people and doing work that was entirely left brain, focused on spreadsheets. And I've spent more hours on the Energy Information Administration's website, the US Department of Energy site. I probably have spent thousands of hours going through their data. I've got a massive database where I've downloaded all of their core data or much of their core data and analyzed and projected enough hundreds and hundreds of spreadsheets, many of which are on my website and a few dozen of which made it into the book. When you make a provocative point about the price declines of solar, it's so easy to cherry pick. The vast majority of people are trying to make compelling arguments about anything, including the transition to clean energy, are cherry picking data. So for example, if I saw data hosted by an environmental site, I would never take it verbatim. I'm an environmentalist. I think these things are important. But if I couldn't trace it back to an absolutely objective, peer-reviewed set of data, I wouldn't use it. There are a few exceptions, but by and large, all the data was traced back to its original source, peer-reviewed data. And then I had to bring it up. And I've read tons and tons of science papers till my eyes were rolling up in my head, taking the data and solving that left brain thing as well. There's almost 400 citations and notes in my book, which is crazy. That is crazy. And so when you make a point, like for example, that utilities have the lowest R&D of any industry in the United States, less than 10th of a percent of their revenue goes to research and development. You really got to be able to back it up. I found that point because Bill Gates had said it in passing in a thing he wrote four or five years ago, but it took me a month of research to find deep data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics and things like that to really support that point. And it's in there. Actually, it's such a provocative point. I found two sources for it. Otherwise, people dismiss the points. They don't take the gravity of the data seriously unless they believe they can actually go check it. No one actually checks it. But if I would encourage people to do it because I've traced every single data point there back to multiple sources cited by peer-reviewed data. So getting that right and that left brain at the same time was the hardest part of why it took me so long, four years, to write that book. That is key, though, taking really that data and peer-reviewed data and basically having support for what you're saying which makes a huge difference than you just pontificating. And I think that I'm a left-brained guy mostly. So the hardest part for me was getting the stories. In the early versions of the book, yeah. some people read the early, early drafts and were like, this is a great textbook. And they thought they were complimenting me. And I was like, how? <laughs> and I found two different folks who were both career publishers. And I was able to convince them to spend some time with me to help me make it more readable. And I remember one of them telling me, Emily, saying, you know that Puerto Rico story? That's an interesting story. That needs to start the book. 
And I said, no, no, no. I mean, that's just like a, she goes, no, that needs to be the core story of the book. I said, do you know how much rewriting that's going to be? She goes, it'll be worth it. So I pulled the Puerto Rico story, which now I'm so glad I did it, but it took a month of worth of work to tease it out of a sort of a dry telling into a human story about people and individuals. And I went to Puerto Rico and interviewed people that had lived through the hurricane there. And I think it adds a dimension to the book that was the hardest part for me to do, but hopefully makes it more addressable by people who aren't wonky industry types. Yeah. And I think that was great, that chapter to start it off, because that really got me excited about how renewable energy, solar specifically, and batteries and microgrids can make a difference when the rest of, or a lot of Puerto Rico did not have power at that time. Yeah. how you're still able to run electricity. And obviously it's about survival after the hurricane. I think it captivates, especially like people who are not in the industry to see like the value that this technology yeah. has. So I think that's a great change. And a lot of people in the industry, I've heard many times that they forget why they do it. They're stuck in the spreadsheets and the filings and the regulatory process and permitting. And it's good for even people in the industry to be reminded what a difference their systems make, especially the small scale systems, which I focus on in the book, what a difference this makes in people's lives. It's very real and palpable for the families and communities that enjoy a new level of resilience and lower bills. It's easy to forget that when you're behind schedule or some solar panel hasn't arrived at your loading dock and your uh, team's out with COVID and you're dealing with it every day, which is real and important. But to remember that this stuff changes people's lives and particularly the small scale stuff. That's a great point. And that gets to the kind of the main topic of the book of what is local energy. Can you talk about how you define it? You were kind of talking about that this earlier, but it would be great to understand from you how you define local energy. That was a big question. I've spent a lot of my career marketing and the choice of words is everything. <laughs> yes. And I wanted to make sure that the term I used to describe this idea that emerged from all my research, this small scale systems, that it would make sense to people, that it would stick. There are so many words and phrases to describe local energy that already exist. DERs, distributed energy systems, and behind the meter, non-wires alternatives. There's just so many different descriptions. But the problem with all of those words is that they come from the industry. They come from the installers and the regulators. And not a single one of those phrases makes any sense to the most important people in this entire equation, which is the customers. And there's no better way to make that case. Anyone in the industry, whether they're on a utility or a regulator or even someone who's advocating for customers, people outside the industry are shocked to learn that uniformly, you and I as bill payers are referred to rate payers. That's what we are. We're not customers. We're rate payers. That's our role that the regulators and utilities see us as because they're monopolies and we have to go with them. We have some choices in some states, but generally speaking, we are rate payers. And I wanted a word, a phrase that captured the essence of what it means to people, families. I looked at things like farm to table for electrons mm -hmm. and things that captured the ethos of the human side of this eventually came to local energy. Because I'm a marketer, I ran lots of tests and surveys with different audiences, paid surveys, rankings, and found that that phrase really worked. I discovered after six months that John Farrell of ILSR had already popularized it, which I deeply appreciate him making that phrase widely known among the industry. But it's really power for the people, by the people. It's not just the technology, but it's the benefits it has in terms of resilience and cost savings. And they're local. That's why it needed a new word. And the term local energy is used 400 times in the book because that's really what the book is about. That's a great summary of local energy. You talked about some of the benefits, but how is the, as you make a great point, the customers have a lower cost with local energy compared to maybe purchasing the electricity from the utility? In most places in the United States, if you put up a solar system on your roof, you will see immediate reductions in your electricity bills. I'm not aware of places where that isn't the case. California may change that with their new net metering proposal in NEM 3.0 that will be resolved or could be resolved by the time this podcast plays out. I hope they find a more balanced answer than the very utility-centric approach that they're proposing at the moment. But the challenge is that people just don't know that their bills will go down. Whether you're in Georgia, which is a highly regulated state, or California, which traditionally has been very pro-rooftop solar, almost everywhere you go, you're going to save money. So the first thing is people just don't know that. The second challenge is a lot of Americans either don't have access to their own roofs or they don't have a credit score that allows them to buy into community solar 
or they live in an area in a state that doesn't promote community solar like Georgia. But in most states where there's community solar, it's actually less money to buy a few panels or rent a few panels from a shared system somewhere else and get the electricity from those than it is to pay your utility. And here's the reason that I think that this isn't as clear. I followed closely and advised a few folks on the net metering debate going on in California right now. And even the biggest advocates of rooftop solar all make the following statement. Well, we acknowledge, they say, that it's much cheaper to build solar at a large scale than it is to put it on the roof. And they point to data like from Lazard or mm -hmm. the national labs that uniformly say that it's a dollar to two dollars to put up per watt of solar on a large scale system. And it's two and a half to three and a half dollars to put up a rooftop solar for residential or somewhat less for commercial. And so they look at that data and they make this wide ranging statement that says it's cheaper to do large scale solar. So implication being we should just build large scale solar and small scale solar is kind of a vanity project. And so one of my most memorable interviews is with the utility executive who I will not name and I won't name his firm. I said, why isn't there more small scale solar? Why are more people putting rooftop solar on their homes and buildings? And he said, listen, Bill, I'm all for environmentalism. And if people want to check the green box and feel good about their role in the environment, it's fine if they put solar on the roof. But in the end, I'm a dollar and a cents guy. And if you pencil it out, building out large scale solar is much cheaper than putting it on roofs. And he captured the argument that everybody uses. But I paused and I said to him, it's cheaper for you. And he went silent. I said, it's cheaper for you to build it. But if you put up a giant solar project outside my city or in some rural part of my state, will my electricity bills go down? No. No answer. No, of course they're not going to go down. Maybe in the long, long, long term, they might. So they're cheaper for you and your profits go up when you build it. But if I put solar on my roof in almost every single situation, my electricity bills will go down immediately, including paying for the financing of the solar panels on my roof. Even with that, my electricity bills will go down immediately. So as far as I'm concerned, the cheapest form of solar is when I put it on my roof. And he definitely changed the subject. And so even advocates of rooftop solar get this confused. Solar is cheaper for you and me if we put it on a roof. And the way that I look at it is solar is cheaper than even wind. It's cheaper than coal, it's cheaper than nuclear, it's cheaper than natural gas. And so the real thing we're debating here, and the book gets into heavily, is who benefits from the profits of cheaper solar? And if California's proposed uh, rulemaking comes to light, comes to fruition, nearly all the benefits of solar's being cheaper will accrue just to the utilities. And California citizens will not have access to the benefits of the cheaper solar, even if they finance it and install it themselves. And that's ultimately a battle that the utilities are going to lose. And the only reason they have a chance at winning is because people just don't know better, which is one of the biggest motivations for me to write this book. Yeah, definitely. That's a huge motivation, just educating the public, because I don't think a lot of people really understand this. And I think you do a great way of being pretty straightforward and easy to understand in the book. You talked about how solar technology is cheaper than a lot of other technologies. Nuclear, you're talking about wind, obviously natural gas. One of the key concepts in the book that you talk about is how solar is a technology and not a fuel, which I think is such a great point that I think about like all the time. Can you talk about that? And especially because of your tech background, I think you could really understand and explain it a lot better than a lot of people can because you've seen it happen many times. It's such a powerful phrase that solar and batteries are technologies and not fuels. It's immediately intuitive to people, but at the same time, I've spent a lot of time writing in the book about the implications of it. And at its essence, there's really two things. The first is that in order to get energy from fuel, you need to consume it. And whether it's coal, uranium, natural gas, you need to take it out of the ground. You need to ship it to a place where it can be consumed. You need to consume it to generate electricity. And then you need to do something with what's left over. Or in the case of CO2 in the atmosphere, you just don't worry about it and don't have to pay for it. That cycle repeats itself with every new kilowatt hour of energy or BTU of heat you generate. And so you get locked into this cycle, this business cycle that in the 70s, the US suffered greatly as OPEC curtailed the oil back to the United States and prices went to the roof and it created this geopolitical mess. The difference of technologies, and the second big point is that once you have a technology, for the most part, you can continue to use it without having to go back and pay for it. So while you have financing options, and that's a different topic, but if you buy an iPhone, you don't necessarily have to go back to Apple every hour you want to use it. You own the iPhone and you get benefits from it. Now you might buy a service from Apple, but it's not like an oil company. And so when people talk about things, for example, the dependence for lithium or nickel or cobalt is creating the same dependency cycle that we are trying to get away from with the Middle East and oil, they're completely missing the point. Or 
buying panels from China is just the same as buying oil from the Middle East, they're entirely missing the point. Because once I put those solar panels up, they're going to last 30, 40 years and produce electricity. I never have to go back to China to buy more solar panels. I never have to go back to the DRC to buy more cobalt for my batteries. I have them and I can continue to use them. And as recycling gets better and better, I'll have to go back to the source materials less and less. That's simply not the case with fuels. But here's the coolest thing. It's the third thing that really emphasizes why technology versus fuels is so important and disruptive. I come from the tech industry. And if you're building at a data center, you assume that your cost of storage and computation will drop dramatically in the next two to three years. You count on that. You assume that your cost per megabyte or gigabyte or gigabit per second or megaflop or whatever it is you're measuring is going to go down. And it's going to do it predictably because it's done it for 30 or 40 or 50 years. That's a mindset that is completely absent in the electricity industry. And that's why the fact that solar and batteries are technologies is throwing them for such a loop because they have no experience planning for something that's continued to go down year after year after year in price. They are good at planning for geopolitical shocks and labor unions going on strike at coal plants. These are things they understand and they've done a marvelous job, utilities and power companies over the years, navigating so we always get our power. My hat's off to them genuinely for that. But no one understands what it means when the price of solar is going to be 10 times cheaper in six or seven years than it is today. No one understands that. They don't have models, spreadsheets, and planning or executives who understand how to navigate that transition. That's why the power industry, just like so many other industries, is going to be disrupted by solar and batteries. As much as the large existing infrastructure companies want to embrace it, and they will. But in the end, there's a very, very good chance that like every other single industry where technology has become a major factor in its evolution, the incumbents always end up becoming less relevant. And they're almost always displaced by fast-moving maverick competitors. You know, Look what Elon Musk has done with electric vehicles. He took a car from being something mechanical into something that's basically entirely technology. Electric vehicles in general are going through a slower but equal version of what we call Moore's Law or Swanson's Law. It's just going to keep getting cheaper. So when you bought a Tesla five years ago, it was a lot more expensive. When you buy a Tesla five years from now or from Ford or anyone else that's getting into that industry, it's going to be a lot cheaper than a gasoline-powered vehicle. It just will. Even Detroit struggles to understand what's like when a product's going to be half the price that it is today in five years and changes everything. And that's why disruptors like Tesla are so successful. That's a great and interesting point about how the electricity industry is not used to price declines, especially how exponential it's really been in the solar industry. And I think you do a great job of explaining too how different research agencies have tried to predict the cost declines in <laughs> solar, but it's always happened a lot faster than they ever estimated it to be. Which I There's some wonderful graphs that I've seen and I replicated in the book that show the projections of both the Energy Information Administration, which I respect tremendously, and their counterpart in Europe, the IEA, and for a decade and a half, they all projected the price and the penetration of solar. For the first five years, each of them was off by way more than an order of magnitude. The amount of solar in three and five years will be X, and they're at 10X in six months in reality. I mean, that degree of being wrong. And what really was remarkable is they did it wrong over and over and over and over again. Unfortunately, the world took their cues from these otherwise impeccable predictors. They're impeccable predictors of things like penetration of nuclear and penetration of gas plants, but they were completely wrong about solar, way more than they were even wrong about wind, because wind follows a much more predictable path. Here's an interesting statistic that really blew my mind. Why is solar becoming so much cheaper than anything else? What exactly is it about solar as opposed to even wind, which has declined dramatically in price? Why is it different? Well, here's an interesting set of numbers. Look at the number of power plants, number of units of energy creation that have been manufactured. Well, in history, there've been 440 nuclear plants. Each one you build, you learn a little more. So the next one, you get a little better. And this is called the learning curve. And it goes by many, many names. So very few nuclear plants built, very little learning. In fact, the price of nuclear continues to go up. 2,400 coal plants built around the world. Not a lot of them, but they have gotten better because it's been done over the years. About 4,000 natural gas plants of any scale, right? So that's moving more quickly. There's 10 times the number of natural gas plants that there are Nuclear plants, there's a lot of learning cycles involved. They get smarter. But if you start to look at wind and solar, and what's the smallest unit of a wind energy? It's a turbine. So how many turbines have been built and installed since they began? The number is about 500,000. 
So you're starting to see why the price of wind has declined so dramatically over the last 20 years, because they've made a thousand times more wind turbines than nuclear plants. And every time they make one, they get smarter and they fix their mistakes and they get economies of volume. They can make it on an assembly line and that lowers the cost and automation and things like that. Well, guess how many solar cells have been made over the last, if we've made 500,000 wind turbines and solar cells are small, but that's a unit of energy. Guess how many solar cells have been made since they started commercially putting them on solar plants? I have no idea. <laughs> I'm sure it's, it's in the last 25, 30 years, they've made 120 billion solar cells. Wow. So every single time they make one, they're learning a little more. You've been very generous and interviewed me on another company I'm involved with called Solar Inventions. And the learning curve, every time you make a solar cell, you learn a little more. There's so much data. The moment that solar cell comes off the factory line, you can measure it and you can improve. So there's this degree of constant learning with solar, whether it's a small scale solar lantern in Africa, or it's a gigantic solar project in the desert that's powering cities. Every one of those solar cells is an opportunity to learn a little more. That's why solar has declined 400 times in cost since they were using them to put on satellites in the 70s. And that price decline will continue, even though there's burps occasionally with supply chain issues, which we're seeing in 2021. But by and large, the price of solar will continue to decline for years to come because they get smarter and smarter about how to make each new solar cell as they make them into billions. And I call that economies of volume, which is a relatively new idea in energy. As a leading authority in the solar industry, life gets very busy. In addition to traveling the world as a speaker and for my entrepreneurial ventures, I'm a son, friend, investor, and entrepreneur. And when it comes to delivering a great sounding show for my listeners, I choose Podcast Laundry. All I have to do is record and send and the rest is done. They do the dirty work of podcasting for me. Yes, social media graphics, quotes, show notes, master editing, and much more. All I have to do is record. So if you're a busy podcaster like me with an engaged audience and want to free up your time to do more of what you you love, like going to the gym or spending time with loved ones, go to podcastlaundry.com to schedule your consultation or call 347-871-8273. That's podcastlaundry.com or 347-871-8273. That's interesting that you talk about economies of volume. You also mentioned obviously Moore's Law and Swanson's Law, which is kind of similar but different concepts in a certain sense, because I think Moore's Law also relates to efficiency of the panels, not just price, but I could be wrong on that. Well, efficiency is one of the costs per unit of electricity that improves over time. And there's many other things that you lower the cost of materials. You use the amount of silver used in a solar cell has plummeted in the last 10 years. So all those things collectively create a very steep and somewhat predictable decline in the cost per unit of electricity generated. In my book, I've got some really cool graphs that show the cost of unit electricity has declined for nuclear, hasn't wind, natural gas, and coal over the years. And then I have another one that mirrors that that shows where they're projected to go. I looked at dozens of sources of folks who think about these kinds of numbers and put them all together, analysis I'm very proud of. And you can see without any cherry picking that solar in the coming years will be the absolute cheapest way to generate electricity that has been created in human history. That's inevitable. Whether we have tariffs or subsidies or tax breaks or whatever, solar is going to be the cheapest way to generate electricity in the history of humans and batteries are not far behind it. So when those two are together, the entire way we generate electricity will be transformed and it's inevitable. It'll be the cheapest. I agree with you. And that's a great point for everyone to understand. People obviously who are in the sector, but also people who are interested or interested in learning more about it. You mentioned a point in the book that it's better to actually have more solar than batteries because it's cheaper. And it's probably related to the concepts that you're talking about before, because it'll be the cheapest form of electricity. Yes. Solar and battery storage. So that's interesting. The whole energy system, since we were burning wood a thousand years ago, has been built on the notion of scarcity. In other words, it costs enough money to make energy, heat energy, electrical energy, light, that the system has been designed to become as efficient as possible. People like Amory Levins, one of my very first interview in the book, has been a proponent of efficiency is the cheapest and most effective form of energy generation is to not generate it. Use LED bulbs instead of incandescent bulbs, for example. But going forward, the price of generating electricity is going to be so inexpensive that it's going to be cheaper to over-generate than it is to store it. You got to get your head around that. So there's a whole section in my book about the inevitability of having too much electricity. And Taming the Sun, a great book that came out a few years ago, talks about this as a problem. But one of my favorite thinkers is a guy named Michael Liebreich, who founded 
Bloomberg New Energy Finance. And he's quoted in my book saying that overcapacity is not a bug, it's a feature. What happens when you have too much electricity is entirely new businesses get created. Entire industries come into existence that couldn't have existed before. And so this is why super inexpensive solar changes so many of the fundamental assumptions in everything about our energy systems, including electricity. And we're going to be in 10 or 20 years in a world of abundant energy. Not every day in the peak air conditioning days of the hot summers or the peak heating days in the Northeast from electricity. Those days we won't have abundant electricity, but other times we'll have more than we need, way more than we need. And it's going to create unimaginable cool businesses for entrepreneurs and social impact. It's just a really exciting future that no one's even thinking about today. And hopefully by touching on my book, a few people will be inspired and go build some businesses ready for when that future occurs. That is such an interesting concept that I really haven't heard much about until I read your book and something that I've been thinking about really an environment where we have too much electricity. For right. sure. Carbon capture, the problem with carbon capture is that it's expensive. It's very energy intensive. And imagine if the majority of solar plants built were overbuilt. I'm sure some of the ones you guys build are just a bit larger than they need to be so that you can sell a little bit of electricity extra when the sun's ramping up and ramping down in the day. Very common practice among people that build solar plants, but it's a small number. That number will be much larger, especially if someone can pull a truck up to your solar plant somewhere, your customer solar plant, and offload a few cargo containers that do carbon capture. And they take that excess electricity that you're otherwise, the grid doesn't need and you're not getting paid for it. You just power this carbon capture and you get essentially sellable carbon credits generated locally. This is absolutely going to happen. Part of what I had to go back and think about in the book has having seen so many technology transitions over the years and things that seem impossible because you just can't imagine how different they are become mainstream because the cost of technology becomes so low. And one of my favorite stories in the book speaks to this. It was back in the 90s when I was at my software company and one of the programmers calls me into his office and says, hey, come look at this. And I walk in the room and there's several programmers around the room all staring at this computer on the desk. And he says, watch this. He presses a button on the computer and you hear the modem dialing, which is the way we used to communicate the internet. <laughs> and we're all like, oh yeah. And he says, no, I'm not dialing into a bulletin board. I'm dialing into the internet. And we'd heard about this. You could actually get into the internet and he pulls up it was the first time I saw a web browser with fonts and colors. I'd never imagined such a thing could exist. And he says, no, no, this isn't the interesting part. I'm like, wow, okay. And he presses a few buttons on the early Mosaic browser and he comes to his grainy little video, a little 320 by 240, six frames per second video. And it was just horrible. I was a CEO and he kind of looks at me and says, can you imagine when this stuff becomes more affordable that we could use these computers and the internet to deliver video? You know what I said? I said, baloney. You know how much cheaper the computing would have to become, how much cheaper the internet would have to become. People aren't going to want to sit in front of a clunky old computer to watch stuff. They want to be in front of a TV. As I was writing the book, I thought about that moment when I prognosticated as the expert that the 100% obvious inevitable trends of technology wouldn't lead to this very simple thing he was suggesting. Of course, we're going to do video over the internet because of course the price of computing and computer screens and bandwidth and computation was going to continue falling as it had for the decades that allowed there to be a computer on the desk in the first place. It was inevitable. And I just completely didn't see it. So in the book, I try really hard to break out of my own limited thinking and say, what happens when solar costs 50 cents a watt to install, when it costs 20 cents a kilowatt hour to generate solar power? At some point, it will be like that. And what does that mean for the world? And the opportunities for entrepreneurs and innovators go through the roof. The world is entirely unpredictable and exciting. And hopefully when people read my book, particularly people that are inclined towards innovation and entrepreneurism, they're going to say, there's some really big ideas coming. I want to be out in front of it. That's probably the biggest reason I wrote the book was yeah, to spark that sense. For sure. It definitely sparks that sense. And I think there's so much innovation that I can't even think about that I can't even imagine at this point what can be created from that opportunity. It's exciting. It's definitely very exciting. Moving on to another topic. There's so many great topics that you talk about in the book. In the podcast, we won't be able to go <laughs> through all of them. So I focused on a certain amount of topics that I thought that our listeners would be very interested in hearing. And one of them is how China has really kind of led the way and is dominating solar adoption and production and manufacturing. Can you talk about from Yurk's interviews, why is that the case? I think a lot of our listeners here are based in the US, are trying to understand like the Chinese market and the dominance when it comes to solar and batteries. 
it would be great to get your perspective. When I started interviewing people for the book, China just kept coming up over and over again. And there was a palpable sense of bitterness by early pioneers in the US solar industry that had invested to build companies to make solar and felt that Chinese companies had taken the market from them. Even to this day, you and I have plenty of folks in our network that feel like China's cheating. My own experience in business is when such accusations are leveled, there's usually another side to the story. I really wanted to understand this. As I try to do in the book, when there's a really powerful topic to explore, I went to China, looked up a very dear friend of mine, someone who I've worked with in several different companies before we both got into solar, Andy Klump, who runs Clean Energy Associates and who's been on your podcast several times and been on mine several times. He's one of the smartest people about the trends in global solar that I think exists and certainly an undisputed expert on China when it comes to solar. But I interviewed a lot of other people like Ajit Rohatki, who started Cineva here in the US, one of the early pioneers in that space. As I talked to people both in the US and in China, and Andy and I went and visited JA Solar and Jinko and several others. And we also met with the leaders and the founders of these companies and we went to the factories. What became increasingly clear was that China's success was not as simple as they're cheating. They definitely benefit from support from the government. But as it was pointed out to me by several Chinese executives, that US companies like Solar World and Cineva and manufacturers of modules have also benefited from large support from the US government, state and county governments. So it's likely that Chinese companies have received more support from the government than their counterparts in the US, but it would be wrong to say that it's entirely about that. And many people assume that China's big advantage is low cost labor. That might've been the case many years ago, but it's actually much cheaper to get an hour of labor in Mexico than it is in China. But yet we're not making solar panels by the billions in Mexico. The reason that I uncovered and talked about in the book was really about Chinese government policymaking and the will to execute against the policies they make. You know, as Americans, we're seeing less ability of our government to set policies and execute on them. The previous administration thought we should really double down on coal. I don't agree at all with that, but they were unable to make that into an actionable policy. The current administration, who I happen to agree with more, thinks we should be doubling down on solar and clean energy broadly, and they're struggling to make the scale of change and scale of policy they want. In China, there's a lot of downsides to being a business or a citizen in China because it's a communist government. But one of the upsides, they say, we're going to win in solar, and they're doing it now in batteries. And they build this entire ecosystem supported by every dimension of the government and business. Now, the downside is what the government giveth, the government can taketh away. And if you were mining Bitcoin in China, you're pretty sore to government right now. But if you're making batteries or cars, you really like the government. And if you were making solar panels and cells many years ago, you really liked the government because they were making loans available more easily than they do for other industries. My favorite story was sitting down with one of the founders of Jinko, and I asked him about this policy setting. And he goes, making solar cells and panels here and outside of Shanghai is different than anywhere else we make them in the world. He said, everywhere else, if I need a new material, boron or some paste, I need to go into the supply chain system, wait for it to arrive. And inevitably that means that there's either I'm carrying a ton of inventory or my line is delayed. He said here, and he puts his hand to his head, holds it up like a cell phone. And he says, I just make a call. And three hours later, a truck shows up at the back of my manufacturing plant and I've got the materials I need because the entire supply chain was within 40 or 50 kilometers of every single thing I need to make solar cells and panels. So I never, ever go down. He said, that's why our panels are cheaper. There's a lot of other things. One of the solar executives I talked to, who I won't name in China, when I pressed him, he said, China also gets advantages because their environmental policies are not as strict. So the disposal of certain kinds of chemicals and things is a little easier. Not, not, it's not a free-for-all like the, yeah. some of the things you read, not by legitimate companies that want to sell legitimate products into the US and global markets, but it is easier. And financing is a little easier. But he also said that he believed, this is from a Chinese executive, but he said they are the alignment of government policy and business towards creating a cohesive supply chain in a single region, the number one reason that China is so successful making panels. And the reason that I believe that they are going to be very successful making batteries, the same economic policy being applied to batteries right now. The one final thought that China does, and I didn't hear from the executives, by the way, I actually interviewed people who were consultants to the Chinese government who had spoken to the highest levels, had spoken at the highest levels of government, given the pitches and done analysis. And I wasn't just listening to people in the industry, but something I didn't hear, but I've observed is that China backs up their manufacturing policy with buying the products that are made. And this is 
something I wish the US government would be doing and it has done in the past for other industries, but is not doing at all for anything in clean energy. And that is that China has created policies not just to make solar, but to buy solar. As I'm sure your listeners know, China is the largest installer of solar in the world, probably more than most of the world put together. And they are creating solar markets for batteries by incenting the adoption of electric vehicles. So they not just make them in the country, but they're making them markets. You know, the only reason transistors beat out vacuum tubes, and this is a fun story I only got to briefly touch on in the book, but the US knew that transistors were critical. They knew that transistors were a competitive national advantage. The government twisted the military's arm to become the first buyer at scale of transistors. And as a result, transistors fell by orders of magnitude in price to where they became cheap enough to be put in consumer products. And the US basically built and owned the semiconductor industry because of the government's early support through the military of transistors. We're not doing anything like that in solar and batteries in the United States. And that's when you complete the entire supply chain all the way to consumers. If I had one wish, it would be that the federal government would mandate they will only buy products that are made in the United States. And that would do more than all the ITCs and more than all the, the state governments looking for certain degrees of clean energy. If the US federal government would only buy solar made in the United States, I believe it would spur the domestic market and prices would become competitive with China. And we would have a more balanced global economy for clean energy than we do at the moment. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective of basically the government supporting and buying product to support the industry, especially industries that will give, as you mentioned, a competitive advantage with like semiconductors, your example. That's great. Another topic that's a myth is that people think solar is highly subsidized, that other energy assets in the US aren't. Can you talk about the research that you did? Because I thought that was really interesting because you provide us a lot of support to every basically energy project in the US is subsidized, which a lot of people don't know that. Not only do they not know that every type of energy is subsidized, they don't understand the crazy degree to which subsidies occur for other energy types. And the reason this is confusing is that you read these reports, typically from environmental groups, that talk about these trillion dollar subsidies for fossil fuels. When you look at them, they're legitimate numbers, but they're including things that are very hard to put real numbers against, like healthcare costs because of particulate pollution driving disease in 10 years. So when those kind of numbers are thrown out there, the average person just poo-poos it because it's a bunch of squishy numbers, I call it. It turns out that if you strip away these sort of long-term indirect effects of fossil fuels and other energy generation types that rely on fossil fuels, the case for solar being oversubsidized falls apart anyway. You don't need to include healthcare costs and environmental costs to see the subsidy story. You are hard-pressed to find anybody in the world that does that analysis. So I looked and I looked and I looked. It turns out, to my great surprise, and as Americans, we should be very happy to know this, that the US Congress, as dysfunctional as it seems to be most times, has a dedicated McKinsey and Company-like internal strategy data group called the Congressional Research Service. Had you ever heard of this? I've never heard of this. No one's heard of it. This is hundreds of people with PhDs, and they study the questions, and they have a whole group related to energy for Congress to make database decisions. And I think in the last couple of years, maybe that's been ignored more than I would like it to be. That's what politicians do. But they produce stunning data on things like subsidies across all industry types. And it's raw data and you can get it. The Joint Tax Commission, jtc.gov, has all the subsidies every single year broken down by every PTC, ITC, efficiency, grants, tax breaks, all of it's listed in these just thousands and thousands of pages, not spreadsheets, pages. And so I worked with some experts and pulled all of that data over 60 or 70 years into a master spreadsheet. And I had it reviewed by people that do this for a living and they confirmed it. I corroborated it with data the Congressional Research Service has published and it's cited, but I did the first principles work underneath it to recreate it for my own so I could ask more nuanced questions. So for example, if you look at total subsidies for energy, clean energy, the Congressional Research Service includes ethanol fuel next to solar. That's one bucket. Yes. And so it looks like if you don't know that 60 or 70% of that subsidy is ethanol, which is a whole debacle on itself, then you're going to think solar is getting these enormous subsidies. But if you actually look at solar alone, you look at wind alone, you realize that the subsidies in total dollars being spent on coal and oil and renewable ethanol are vastly larger 
And so I expose this data and all the sources. And if you really want to understand it, there's links in the book to my website where 100% of the raw data is available. So you could recreate the analysis of everything in my book. And this is probably why it took me two years longer, two of the four years was doing this data defensively, readably. It's all in my book. I saw all on my website, this, all the sources, all the links, and I recreate everything I did. And so for subsidies, I show that we spent five to 10 times more on fossil fuel subsidies in the last 30 years than we have on solar and wind together. Subsidies for ethanol are off the charts, tens of billions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars. The trouble is that the subsidies for fossil fuels are kind of baked into the system. And I trace back in the website, I didn't get, want to get into this much detail in the book, but in the website, I trace back the origins of why fossil fuels accelerated depreciation is essentially a subsidy. I didn't even know what accelerated depreciation was. But if you search for it, you'll find that it's considered one of the most generous subsidies in the entire US government panoply of subsidies. And it applies almost exclusively to fossil fuels. And if you read a fine print of some of the Build Back Better stuff, they're trying to get rid of it. That got killed. But if you buy a plot of land to drill oil, you will get subsidies in excess of what you paid for that plot of land and to build the equipment to drill the oil. So you'll save more money than you paid in cash to buy the land and build the equipment because of accelerated depreciation. And this is really wonky stuff, but noise I didn't get into it too heavily in the book, but it's all on my website. And you start to look at this stuff and you can see even ignoring health and environmental costs downstream, the actual amount of subsidies for fossil fuels are crazy big. I haven't found anyone who's written about this. I could have written a book about this. And if you're really curious about it, just search for Congressional Research Service subsidies on energy. And you'll start to get a quick glimpse of data and you'll look at this data and you look at these graphs, you'll say, I've never seen this anywhere in any media. But you look at the people who wrote it, you look at their job titles, and you look at the sources they have, and it's 100% rock solid. And so if I did nothing else, I took data from the Environmental, the Energy Information Administration and from the Congressional Research Service, and I turned it into plain speak so that normal people could read it because you don't read about this stuff anywhere. But it's absolutely defensible data. I think that's a huge thing. I mean, a lot of people don't understand it. And you brought data basically from the government to analyze it and prove what people in the industry have been thinking for a long time, but haven't actually spent the time or the resources or money to do that. Because I know not to bore the audience, but the solar industry was trying to push to try to be qualified as a master limited partnership mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to take advantage of the depreciation benefits. But it was just too complicated to be able to get that and it was easier staying with the 1603 grant, which was a cash grant or investment tax credit. If you're building an oil pipeline, then yeah. the MLPs are fantastic going to save you a fortune. And lower your costs. So that's not even mentioned in any analysis I have, but MLPs is an example where they're applied liberally to fossil fuel projects and they're not available to clean energy projects. And they should be. Yeah, they should be. And it doesn't make any sense, at least from a strategic economical perspective. Obviously, there's politics that are involved, I think. Some people understand this stuff and they are paid by somebody to defend it and that's somebody's best interest. But very, very few people understand this. And I was talking to one person I interviewed that I just wanted to scream. He was telling me he's a policy maker who works for the government, very high level. And he said, when I get data from the coal companies and the nuclear companies, you know, it's very clear, it's well laid out. He said, I don't understand why the solar people can't give me the same data. And I just looked at him and I said, because they have no money. They're tiny little companies. They don't have dozens of PhDs that are paid for by my bills that I'm forced to pay because they're a monopoly and they can turn around and make the data case. You can't expect that from the solar companies. And he's kind of reluctantly agreed with me. But from his point of view, he's a super busy guy. And when he gets data from the people that want things to remain the way they are, it's compelling, it's thorough, it's written for him. It's deeply researched and cited. And when he gets stuff from the solar industry, it's impressive, but it's thin. It doesn't have the same degree of gravitas because it doesn't have dozens of PhDs and economists putting it together for him. And so he just tends to weigh the value of the data from the fossil fuel and the utility industries more than he does from the solar industry because of the budgets involved on each side. And people think this is just about lobbyists, but this is a whole other dimension that gives the incumbents a lot more leeway to make their case than people realize. You know, Leah Stokes has a great book, which I referenced throughout my book called Short Circuiting Policy. And it's a phenomenal insight into how electricity policy gets done at states and nationally. It's sometimes hard to read if you're not in the policy business, but it's incredibly interesting what things actually get done. Um, and definitely interesting to anybody who's making policy 
and electricity. Yeah, that's another great point that you mentioned is solar really doesn't have the financial backing or capital to do these lobbying and special interest and research, as you mentioned, to basically grow and make the industry thrive. But I think the key thing is the technology and the economics. After a while, no matter how long the incumbents are holding back the industry, you can't stop it over the long term. So, oh, Benoit, here's the thing that everyone in the entire industry whether they're being building giant solar and wind projects or nuclear or coal, there's one thing that everybody misses about America. And that is you cannot go to Americans and say, you're going to spend twice as much money over what you could choose to spend so that some large corporations' profits will be higher. You just can't do that. And that's effectively what's being done right now because Americans don't know. Americans don't know that they can put solar on the roof and save money immediately. They just don't know that. And as they start to figure it out, this entire industry is going to come to a screeching disruption. The exact same thing happened with long distance and the AT&T and the baby bells. The exact same thing happened. They held out, they held onto that regulated monopoly as long as they could and then quite a bit longer. But in the end, too many other disruptors were out there showing the world like MCI, we have such a better product. It's such a better price. And the only reason you can't have it is that the regulated monopoly has convinced the regulators and a bunch of apathetic people in the public, they currently have the best option. And it's not true. When that dam broke, it broke in a huge way. AT&T turned upside down. It got broken up. And from that, disruption after disruption emerged. If that hadn't happened, there'd be no commercial internet. There'd be no mobile phones. And that's exactly the same dam that the utilities and regulators are putting up for power today. They have the best intentions. I've never met someone in the utility industry that's not a great person, but they just don't see past the model that they protect. And it's inevitable that Americans are going to finally figure this out. And maybe you and I doing our small parts will be a piece of that. And they're going to go to the Congress people and say, I'm tired of paying more than I need to. Can you please let me get a better product at a better price? And this is just going to break and it's going to be the greatest business opportunity in history. That's a great way to end the podcast because as you mentioned, it's just beginning. We're just in the beginning of the solar disruption and innovation with storage. And it's going to be exciting. And I appreciate you spending the time to be here on the interview today and the book. Everyone should read it and they'll learn a lot. If people wanted to buy the book, what's the best way to buy the Freeing Energy book? Thanks for asking. It's available everywhere. Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Kobo. But Amazon is most people's go-to and you can go there and get in hardcover, softcover, Kindle. And for people like me that struggle to find time, we have a fantastic audiobook version, which I'm very proud of and hired a rock star narrator to put that together. So all four versions are available on Amazon. And I hope people will pick it up and take a read. Hopefully they'll join what I call the local energy revolution. This has been an amazing interview. We'll have it in the notes of the podcast where everyone could get the freeing energy book. And thanks again, Bill. I really appreciate your time and the value that you're adding to the solar industry and local energy and freeing energy. Well, back at you. Thank you for the work you're doing to get the word out there about this industry of ours. And thank you so much for having me on today. It's always a privilege and it's an honor and it's always fun. Anytime. It's always fun having you on the show, Bill. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to the Solar Maverick Podcast. The Solar Maverick Podcast is brought to you by Renew Energy. We're a solar development and consulting firm. If you believe that this podcast is adding value to you, please give us a five-star review and share with those that you think could benefit from this information. Please email all questions, suggestions, and feedback to info at renewenergy.com. That's I-N-F-O at R-E-N-E-U-Energy.com. The Solar Maverick Podcast is produced by Podcast Laundry and executive produced by Benoit Thangin and Kevin Y. Brown.